0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. All right. So this week, I wanted to discuss some recent developments in Syria, which we pretty much only talk about in the U.S. when the U.S. comes under attack. And most people in the U.S., if you were to poll the American public, I doubt a majority would even know that U.S. troops are there. But they are. Uh, There's at least 900 troops. I would guess there's probably more. And the reason they're there is because after Trump tried to withdraw them uh, during his presidency, uh, he was sabotaged. Uh, James Jeffrey, who was a top official, actually Trump's top envoy to Syria, admitted that he lied to the White House in order to basically fudge the numbers and thwart a withdrawal. So the U.S. remains in Syria. The official mission is to fight ISIS and to help uh, its Kurdish allies fight ISIS. But as I've written about before, the Pentagon's own internal reports undermine this official rationale, because in reality, the U.S. is barely doing any fighting against ISIS. And the real reason has been laid out in more private moments by U.S. officials, uh, which I'm going to get to in a second. But first, let me just uh, talk about what happened recently. So it came out that uh, the U.S. in uh, Syria was attacked twice on the same day on two separate bases. There's actually two different U.S. bases in Syria. One is in Al-Tamf, which is close to the Iraq border, and the other uh, is in the northeast region. And that's the region uh, where the U.S. is occupying. It's it's close to one-third of Syria, and that's where Syria's oil resources are, and also a lot of its wheat. And the U.S. occupation basically prevents Syria from accessing those resources. And so in both these places, U.S. forces came under attack. And so the U.S. responded uh, this week with strikes, uh, including one uh, using Apache helicopters that killed, I think, four or five militants. And we're told that the, the, the targets were militants um, or militias linked to Iran uh, and their allies. And the, the reason why this violence flared up is pretty obvious. It was written about in the New York Times on Friday, where basically the, uh, the strikes on this U.S. base, on, uh, on these U.S. bases on August 15th, came one day after Israeli strikes on these same forces, on these Iranian allied forces in Syria. So it's the belief of U.S. officials, and this is uh, substantiated by what's been posted on the social media accounts of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, that these strikes on U.S. forces were retaliation for Israeli strikes, which came first. And you know, one could ask, well, why is Iran and its allies attacking uh, U- the U.S. if it's Israel that attacked them uh, and not the U.S. initially? Well, the answer is, first of all, Israel and the U.S. are obviously very close allies, but also every Israeli strike on Syria is basically a U.S.-Israeli strike because on top of the U.S. and Israel being close allies, It was reported in June in the Wall Street Journal uh, what has been obvious for a long time. And and this is the headline. U.S. secretly reviews Israel's plans for strikes against Iranian targets in Syria. And what the article showed is that basically every time Israel bombs Syria and especially targets Iranian uh, militias there, the U.S. gets the heads up and the U.S. actually reviews the intelligence and signs off. So essentially, that's a, uh, a you know, that's a fancy way of saying that these are U.S.-Israeli strikes, that the U.S. Uh, reviews and approves every Israeli strike uh, on Syria. And there are dozens of them um, that Israel carries out. So it, the U.S. has come under retaliation, and some at least three U.S. troops were wounded inside Syria. Uh, we don't know the extent of their uh, injuries, but this is not the first time that this has happened. And so in speaking to reporters, U.S. officials gave the uh, official rationale. So I will just uh, read what was in Politico this week. This is a, a, a source to a senior administration official speaking to Politico about why the U.S. is in Syria, and they said this quote: "We want to be sure that ISIS cannot reconstitute itself in a manner that can threaten the U.S., Europe, or our partners in the region. We enable local forces to degrade and confront networks that seek to revitalize and the that seek to revitalize and the approach." is successful. It was not long ago that Syria was used as territory to launch attacks throughout Europe and to inspire attacks around the world. We cannot return to those days. Of course, we also hope to see a political solution to the Syrian civil war, but that is not the basis for our military presence. So that is a senior U.S. official giving the official rationale for why the U.S. has forces in Syria. Now, what's interesting is, outlets like Politico publish what administration, anonymous administration officials tell them off the record about why the U.S. is there. What they don't do, though, is state what senior administration officials have said candidly in private moments when they're not trying to spin a certain line to the media, but they're just speaking among themselves and other policymakers. And the foremost expert on what the U.S. real reason for staying in Syria is, is a the U.S. official named Dana Struhl, who is now a senior Pentagon official responsible for Syria. So this is her beat. And in 2019, she laid out why the U.S. is really in Syria. And unlike what uh, this anonymous administration official just said, how this has nothing to do with it, with a political solution to the Syrian civil war, uh, Dana Struhl said explicitly, this is exactly has to do with determining Syria's future. And what she said was that the U.S. is in Syria for leverage, that owning Syria's resources gives it leverage to shape a political outcome in Syria uh, in line with U.S. interests. So let's hear what Dana Sturl said, speaking candidly to U.S. policymakers at a think tank gathering in 2019.
1: The United States still had compelling forms of leverage on the table to shape an outcome that was more conducive and protective of U.S. interests. And we identified four. So the first one was the one-third of Syrian territory that was owned via the U.S. military with its local partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, this was a light footprint on the U.S. military, only about a 1,000 troops over the course of the Syria study group's report, and then the tens of thousands of of forces, both Kurdish and Arab, under the Syrian Democratic Forces. And that one-third of Syria is the resource-rich, it's the economic powerhouse of Syria. So where the hydrocarbons are, which... Obviously, is very much in the public debate here in Washington these days, as well as the agricultural powerhouse. But we argued that it wasn't just about this one third of Syrian territory that the U.S. military and our military presence owned, both to fight ISIS and also as leverage for affecting the, the overall political process for the broader Syrian conflict. There were three other areas of leverage. One is political and diplomatic isolation of the Assad regime. So holding the line on diplomatic isolation, preventing embassies from going back into Damascus. Two is the economic sanctions architecture. So some of this is part of the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration on Iran. But there's a whole suite of both executive and congressional sanctions on Syria and Bashar al-Assad, both for human rights abuses in Syria and to the backers of Assad for their activities on support in support of him in Syria. And three was reconstruction aid. So the United States remains the overall largest single donor of humanitarian aid to Syrians both inside Syria and refugees outside of Syria. And there was some stabilization assistance in the part of Syria that was liberated from ISIS and controlled via the Syrian Democratic Forces in northern, eastern Syria. The rest of Syria, though, is, is, is rubble. And what the Russians want and what Assad wants is economic reconstruction. Um, and that is something that the United States can basically hold a card on via the international financial institutions and our cooperation with the Europeans. So we argue that absent behavioral changes by the Assad regime, we should hold the line on preventing reconstruction aid and technical expertise from going back into Syria.
0: So that's Dana Struhl in 2019. And she says a lot there. So let me just summarize. First, she says that the U.S. owns one third of Syria via the U.S. army, the U.S. army forces that are there. Uh, and she notes that this region that the U.S. owns is Syria's agricultural powerhouse and also where the, the hydrocarbons are, so Syria's oil. So that's one form of leverage over Syria's future. And then she also talks about how the rest of Syria is rubble, in her words, and the U.S. can uh, further pressure Syria uh, by holding a line, in her words, on reconstruction aids, which Syria is desperate for because they've just been through a 10-year uh, dirty war uh, that the U.S. was heavily involved in. So that's the real reason that Syria was there. And note that she talks about how this is leveraged for shaping Syria's future, which is the exact opposite of what a senior official just told Politico in saying that we're not there at all to uh, to influence a political solution to the uh, Syrian civil war. That's directly contradicted by what Dana Stroulx said. And what's interesting is even though Dana Stroulx is now a top Pentagon official, implementing this policy that she laid out in 2019 for Syria... Media outlets will never print the real reason that is admitted by the officials involved. What they'll do, though, is be stenographers for the reason that these same officials give them uh, when they're trying to uh, you know, provide their media spin. And that's a fascinating dynamic that, you know, media, at least some media, um, some members of the media are so willing to be stenographers that they will ignore the words of US officials uh, instead just print what they're told to say uh, as the official line so basically it's like working as a as a in in PR I mean you might as well go work for the media for, for the government if you're gonna act as their spokespeople uh, rather than acknowledge what they say elsewhere uh, in more candid moments and uh, when it comes to the official rationale that the u.s is there to fight Isis as I've shown in a year ago I wrote an article called, to keep troops in Syria, U.S. leaders are lying like in Afghanistan. And the point of the article was that, you know, while the U.S. is claiming to fight ISIS in Syria, its own reports from the Pentagon show that the U.S. is barely doing any fighting in Syria at all. And in fact, there haven't been direct engagements between the U.S. and ISIS for at least two years. At least and at least that was true at the time that I wrote that article. So the official reason that we're there to fight ISIS is undermined by the Pentagon's own figures. And the actual reason is contained in the admissions of U.S. officials like Dennis Struhl, that the U.S. is there to, for leverage over Syria to deny it a victory after a 10-year dirty war and to try to continue the regime change campaign through other means by basically forcing Syria into submission by stealing its oil and wheat. And that's why U.S. troops are being put in, har- in harm's way, for leverage, just as a mafia don would put his you know, lower-level capos in harm's way. Uh, if it could help get them leverage over arrival. It's pretty much the same principle. So that's my rant. Uh, Let's take some calls. And of course, we can talk about other topics aside from Syria. There's the Mar-a-Lago raid, which we got the, uh, well, I mean, I was going to say we got the affidavit unsealed for the witness in the case, but only technically because most of it was redacted. And of course, there's also Ukraine where Still, the fighting over the Zaporizhia nuclear plant continues, and uh, the threat of nuclear catastrophe remains. So, let's talk about the whatever you wish, and let's go to uh, Stu, you are first. And Stu, if you're there, you can unmute yourself by pressing the microphone button, which should be in the middle of your screen, I believe. Okay, and if not, we'll go to Eric, you're you're up. Arte Live! Arte Live! That's right. <laughs> Higher. One of those in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: So I guess I wanted to ask, um, how's your, you, are, you have a book coming, right?
0: I'm working on a book, yes, about Russia Gate and how it helped lead to the uh, invasion of Ukraine. But it's not done yet. It will be out next year, early next year.
2: Hey, great. Yeah, I was just curious because you had uh, mentioned that one before.
0: Yeah, uh it's uh it's not easy writing a book. This is my first one and uh it's a lot of work, but uh I it will be out by next year and you know, I'm pretty sure Russia and Ukraine and Russia Gate will still be relevant by then, given how many, you know, multiple uh scandals are and crises are unfolding that all have to do with it, including Mar a Lago by the way. We still don't know exactly the nature of the documents that the FBI and the National Security State are concerned that Trump mishandled, but it seems to me, you know, if I were betting, I think Russiagate has something to do with it, given that Trump claims that he declassified so many documents and now he's being told that he didn't and that they were improperly handled. So I think Russiagate is going to be relevant for a long time. And that's what happens when you have a uh, National Security State that tries to sabotage an elected president. You know, it's just it's gonna have consequences and those consequences continue. Yeah, because um
2: you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the meme really took off about it being nuclear secrets, but it was just what? Wasn't it just traced to some anonymous person saying, well, you know, it could be something like nuclear secrets and then everyone just jumped with that saying, It was nuclear secrets. He's trading nuclear secrets, right? <laughs> or
0: am I am I wrong about that? I mean it was there was something in the Washington Post that said it was something to do with nuclear weapons and it's very ambiguous there's no detail beyond that who knows look you know with trump anything is possible well that i'm I'm not going to be the the saudi
2: nuclear secrets and i was worried about that because that's the worst case scenario is the saudis getting going nuclear because they could really be a rogue state um you know whatever tether of control we think we have on them at this point
0: yeah yeah i definitely think that Trump has shown us that he thinks he's above the law. I mean, January 6th and the whole stop the steal thing, to me, is an example of that. So anything is possible. He actually, unlike Russia Gate, I actually think he might be guilty here. But uh, the problem is there's such a precedent of the walls are closing in and anonymous claims being made about him that turn out to be complete fabrications that it really could go either way.
2: Well, this, maybe this is redundant, but, like, one of the most silly parts of Russiagate was even if you were to assume, like, for example, there was a p-tape, like, if they release a p-tape on Trump, you know, he's so shameless. He doesn't care. I mean, he'll, and, his, and his supporters would have doubled down on him anyways, probably. So yes, even the that idea. Was,
0: yes, but the theory was, though, that the, the, the non-release of the p-tape was being used as leverage over Trump to get him to do uh, Putin's bidding, to follow orders. Um, that was the theory of the case, at least. That, and, and, that's, and it was allowed to persist because the P-tape never materialized, then the conspiracy theory could endure. Yeah. Because as long as Absence. we haven't found the P-tape, then it's, then it's possible that Putin is that, – that's because Putin is holding over him. So it was a perfect conspiracy theory because it, it basically couldn't be disproven until you actually found the P-tape, which, of course, you couldn't because it doesn't exist. So it was a quintessential perfect conspiracy theory, and it worked – and it defied all logic because in real life, Trump's actual policies were not to Russia's liking at all. And in fact, uh, I think, or, you know, played a role in Russia invading earlier this year. And not just when it comes to shipping weapons to Ukraine, which Trump did when Obama wouldn't, but also Trump tearing up nuclear arms treaties like the Open Skies Treaty and the INF Treaty, which uh, I think accelerated Russian fears about being surrounded by you know offensive U.S. weaponry, which is a major factor, I think. In this current crisis with Ukraine, so uh, the P tape, for, for many reasons, it had some holes in it, it, had some flaws.
2: Right. Yeah. Oh, and I want to also mention. Um, uh, it'd be cool if, if, when you do your book, you're able to read the audiobook yourself, because that's always the, the best thing when an author reads their own audiobook. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Okay. It's nice to thanks talk for calling.
2: Bye bye.
0: Likewise. Bye bye. Okay, Fahim hey aaron can you hear me yes hey uh so
3: a couple of uh, questions uh, for you first of all with regards to the syrian uh oil i know trump mentioned uh, that uh, we should just steal the oil but i'm uh, amazed of like how uh, there's basically no coverage of like u.s uh trucks driving uh, off with of syrian oil uh, right now. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask you, do you know by your research or resources and all, who is uh, operating the oil fields? Because it's not special forces, gu- gu- they're not uh, petroleum chemical uh, engineers. Uh, and so, and none of these fields, uh, the, which is the conical field, uh, it's not a um, like it, you just drill a hole and the oil is just popping out. These are mostly secondary recovery, like you're using like a sucker rod pump or like water flooding or uh, gas uh, flood uh, type uh, fields. So, who uh, do you know who is operating uh, those fields?
0: Well, listen. Thank you for these questions and thanks for mentioning that Trump said. I mean, uh, Danish Stroll, you know, who I, whose clip I played, talked about the U.S occupying Syria to steal its uh, uh, wheat and its oil, using that for leverage. But Trump said it very plainly. He just said, we're there to take the oil. He didn't give a long soundbite. He was just very concise about it. And uh, that speaks to why, you know, just going back to the FBI for a second, that's why elements of the national security state don't like Trump. It's not because they even disagree with his policies, but they just don't like that he's honest about it. It's not helpful if you have a president admitting that we're stealing Syria's oil. We're supposed to say we're there to fight ISIS and all the other standard uh, propaganda lines. So yes, Trump made it very <laughs> plain that uh, we're there to steal serious oil. And, you know, for that, I know that under Trump, there was a firm called Delta Crescent Energy, which got a contract to help pump the oil. And apparently, so I, I, I you know, I assume then that they were involved in, 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 uh, in that operation. In in, in in removing the oil from the earth. But then it, when when Biden came in, they said they canceled that contract. That's what they said. So in terms of who's actually operating it now, um, it must be, if it's not that firm or some other firm we don't know about, then it must be the Kurds, you know, the US Kurdish partners. And perhaps they have people coming in over from Iraq, um, where, where the Kurds are as well, uh, doing that. And These reports about the U.S. smuggling or just basically taking Syria's oil across the border into Iraq. I've seen those reports. They were in an outlet called the cradle, which is based in the Middle East. I haven't confirmed them for myself uh, beyond just seeing that reported there. And, uh, I've asked people about it, but you know, it's, uh, I've got nothing I can go on to confirm it. I did write CENTCOM and ask them about these claims of the U.S. and photographs of U.S. trucks. Which are alleged to be taking serious oil. And I've I've written actually multiple times and I have not heard back, which is the first time I've never heard back from CENTCOM. Usually they're pretty good about responding and I haven't heard back on this one. So, but I would like to find out more because it's such a fascinating question. And if, you know, it'd be great to know who actually is operating these oil fields if it's not that US firm hired by Trump.
3: No, and and the reason why I ask is because uh, by educational background, I'm a p- uh, petroleum engineer. So, uh, when it comes to uh, like producing uh, oil uh, a- a- and all, it's a, it's a very. Um, um, Intensive uh, process in terms of like equipment abuse uh, and, and all things break down. You got to replenish, uh, I mean, change out the equipment. And also, it's not just, uh, like a simple cookie cutter uh, uh, thing. So, there has to be a level of expertise uh, behind it. And my uh, main uh, thing was like, okay, which uh, are, uh, which, uh, if any, US companies are involved, are we basically just getting. Uh, consultants uh, from uh, s- uh, somewhere or, or what? So I was just curious if uh, you had some input. But uh, yeah, the, the cradle is where I first saw uh, the uh, r- reports. And so just I uh, uh, was wondering if you kn- knew about it. But uh, yeah, the difference between Trump and uh, the Biden administration, there's a saying in the Middle East or in, in South Asia, which translates to uh, cutting your throat with a sweet knife. Uh, which basically means that one is uh, brutal and the other one is just m- doing sweet talk. And at the end of the day, you're still getting butchered. Uh, so that's the only <laughs> that's right. difference uh, that I see. But thank you so much, Aaron, for t- taking the call. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay. you so Bye. Okay.
0: Amanda.
4: Good evening, Aaron. I hope you're doing well.
0: Thank you. You too.
4: Um, so, I just want to um, ask a question, but I'm going to give a little context. So so one of the times where I had a really huge shift in the way I saw the world was when I saw Noam Chomsky talking about the fact that the United States has a military base in virtually every country on the planet. And how many countries have military bases in the United States? Um, exactly zero. And... And I had never thought about it before because I had just grown up in it, and and more recently I was listening to American Prestige and Matthew Specter said, the national interest is stipulated and not debated, and that's troubling, and I just am curious if you have if if. If anybody is really asking, you know, they explain that we're doing this in the national interest, but what is the national interest that you're doing this on behalf of? I would like to know. I'm an American and you're doing it in on my behalf. I'd like to know what the interest is that you have in doing it. Does there anybody ever speak to that?
0: Yeah, no, No. of course they don't, because the interest is presumed to be legitimate. And it's never asked. How is it in the interest of the U.S. people, the actual people footing the bill, to have whatever it is, 800 military bases around the world, and to be occupying places like Syria? Uh, and the answer is given: national security, right? That this is in the national security interest of the U.S. Much like, you know, it's presumed that whatever, you know, with this controversy with Trump over documents, that Trump is endangering national security. Well, whose national security? I mean, have the American people voted on whether or not they feel insecure? as a result of um, Trump possibly mishandling some documents. I mean, we don't even know what the documents contain. Maybe it'd be in the interest of our national security if we knew what's in them. And if those documents got released, often the truth enhances national security. You know, I think it would enhance our national security if we left Syria. um, And if uh, we let Syria rebuild and, and and we left Syria alone, you know, and instead of right now, the U.S. is also, through Turkey, uh, um, a key U.S. ally, is is protecting a province that is controlled by al-Qaeda. Uh, that's the province of Idlib, which is the last rebel-held province in Syria. And it's it's a, basically a Turkish protectorate. It's on the Turkish grid. Uh, it's, um, its leaders, I think, basically take refuge in Turkey. I don't even think they actually spend most of their time inside Idlib. I think they just cross over occasionally. And they're al-Qaeda, um, the head of... Uh, Al-Qaeda there is named Mohammed Jelani. He is a former uh, deputy of, of uh ukhiri and Baghdadi. And he, he was actually sent into Syria by Baghdadi, who the U.S. killed in Syria later on because he was taking refuge in this province of Idlib. And Brett McGurk, who is a senior White House official for the Middle East on uh, uh, under Biden, has called Idlib Al-Qaeda's largest safe haven since 9-11, but yet the U.S. is now protecting it, essentially. Uh, it was actually U.S. weapons and intelligence that helped al-Qaeda and its allies capture Idlib, And now we're helping to protect it. Um, how is that in our national security interest to, to protect an al-Qaeda-controlled province, you know, to give al-Qaeda a safe haven? It's not in anybody's interest. Uh, but and, yet that's the policy.
4: And the conflation of the national security with the national interest Mm-hmm. I think is is problematic because I, I mean there's only you can't be a hundred percent secure. Secure from what?
0: Sure, yeah, look I and mean, it, I just feel and, and, yeah, so yeah.
4: unresolved about all of that.
0: Yeah. We never yeah.
4: talk about it.
0: Yeah. No, and we never talk about blowback. Like for example, if you remember a few years ago there was the bombing of the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, England. And it turns out that the perpetrators were people who were involved in the rat line going to Libya to help overthrow Gaddafi. And the Emma, and the British intelligence service was instrumental in facilitating their transfer over to Libya to fight Gaddafi. And then they came back and they, some of the people involved with that carried out this bombing in Manchester. So, the, and so even when it directly, directly undermines national security in the form of bombings and, and terrorism, yeah, these questions are not posed. It's just the legitimacy of, Whatever is deemed to be in our national security, even if it undermines national security in practice, is just not questioned.
4: Yeah, I wish you could solve it, Aaron, but thank you for reporting on it. I really appreciate you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Paul. And Paul, if you're there, there's a microphone button that you press to unmute yourself. It should be right in front of you on the screen. Okay, well, if you can figure it out, come back in the queue, and we'll let you back in. Matthew. All right, and Matthew, try to come back if you can figure out the microphone. For some new users, it takes a while, or it takes a second to figure out. Okay, Tim. Can you hear me, or?
5: Hello. Hi. Hey. (laughs) Sorry. It's a bit of a delay there. Um, Yeah, I wanted to try an idea out on you. You know, I think one of the things that I haven't seen really explored is how we are um, managing this miraculous kind of creation of supposed ideological groups in, for instance, Middle East, it could also be Ukraine, um, and they. I, I think actually that the, the The question I haven't seen asked, and I really would like answered, and I think someone like um, Shireen Nirwani at The Cradle could actually do a great job of doing this, is how does this work in practice? Because I actually think what's going on is, largely speaking, this is not an ideological thing. These are criminal gangs, basically, um, you know, being installed by us. And then you know, you have your Pottingers in London, and all these things. You know, trying to create this illusion that there's some, uh, there's some ideological or religious element to this, but actually, it's just business, right? And you know, the, the perfect example of this is is you know the flow of oil out of S- Syria. America doesn't need. Syrian oil, was the biggest, you know, the U.S., the West, or the U.S. is the biggest oil producer in the world right now due to fracking, right? So the whole idea that you can distract people with the idea that, you know, we, we're there to steal oil is kind of absurd, because the whole point is not to steal the oil. We don't need the oil. We just need to starve these people, cripple these people. And then all of these, you know, these arguments about these groups I just think it's all fake, right? I just think it's all bullshit to basically, just like neo-Nazism in, in Ukraine, right? Like, who are you going to stand up? Who's going to fight for you? Who's going to do this crazy shit? Well, a bunch of insane, you know, soccer hooligans from Kharkiv are like easy meat for the CIA. Yeah, we can stand those people up. The whole country's corrupt. They don't believe in anything. We can do that. We can do the same thing in the the you know, in a starving Middle Eastern country, right? You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think we both give the the notion of, um, you know, Salafist, extremist kind of ideology way
0: too much respect. And, you know... Well, look, I, I do, if you look at the leaders of some of the militias that, not just the U.S., but also their allies propped up, so Saudi Arabia... Qatar, I mean, there, there is a Salafi um, influence going on. I mean, there were strong views about uh, Shia and uh, Christians and, and Alawites. I mean, there was a chant early on in the Syria uh, dirty war uh, from Sunni protesters, Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave. And that was apparently pretty popular. But I, agree I you, that, yeah. the, but I agree with you. I agree with you. It's not the only factor. I just I do think it's exploited much like the US did with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. But yes, there is a huge, just basic economic factor where you have a lot of times you have, especially in Syria, you had uh, communities that were poor, uh, not much economic opportunity. And then you had, you know, representatives of Saudi Arabia and Qatar come in and they have literally billions of dollars to spend. We don't, we don't know the actual dollar amount that, Qatar and Saudi Arabia spent on their own, but it's in the billions. And uh, I would say it's even probably, I would guess it's in the tens of billions. They spent a lot of money. And for people who don't have a job, it was a good economic, it was a good economic opportunity. They could pay way more than you could get being a Syrian army soldier. And, you know, when I was in Syria, I was told that actually for some communities during the war, economically, economically, things were well because all this money was coming in. And it was actually sustaining some communities. And when the war ended, all that went away because there was no more Saudi and Qatari money coming in. So, um, and the same with, you know, in a, there's a Palestinian refugee camp called Yarmouk, uh, just, you know, in Damascus. And a lot of people, you know, I, I went there and a lot of it was in ruins. And yeah, a lot of people just bought off because they didn't have any other opportunity. And all of a sudden they get the prospect of making whatever, 10, 20 times what they could get being a Syrian soldier or some other line of work, and, and they took it.
5: Yeah, but I mean, I I think, you know, your instincts are all mine, right? This is exactly what's going on. But the sick thing about it is it's dressed up in some sort of geopolitical, like, mystery, and it's not a mystery, right? Yeah. the 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 way, you know, the whole Western thing is to mess these places up. We don't need their oil. The whole point is just to deprive them of their oil we don't need their wheat the whole point is to deprive them of their wheat
0: right? absolutely and that's yeah and that's exactly that's exactly what danis strule laid yeah. out in that clip i mean i there's no better articulation about the actual policy is than that one
5: yeah and I, I i just i really i really think it would be shocking and actually really helpful if someone and i you know this is idiotic coming from me obviously oh. but the um you know, goes over there and says, what on earth were your motivations for this? Because I think what's happening, if you zoom way out, what's happening is really obvious, is we've shattered these societies, right? Iraq, um, you know, Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We've, we have entirely cynical motives. We have no, so calling out, you know, people for being honest about this isn't Kind of to the point, because the point is we have no good motivations here. But Absolutely. the main thing that the West needs to hear is we have no good motivations here. And the right. whole human rights complex and that whole bullshit, gongo bullshit that you know we pay for to fool ourselves into thinking that we're capable of doing anything positive in this fucking planet, needs that, that's what needs to be fucking taken down. It's our fucking problem right? The West is trash. That's all I've learned since the end, the end of the cold war. The West is irredeemable fucking trash.
0: All right. Well, Hey, that's a, that's a strong, strong message with, I think, yeah. uh, I think, I think some truth to it. Thank you, Tim, for the call. Okay. Curl Malone. <laughs> nice name. Okay. Go ahead.
6: Hey, Aaron, are you there? Yes. Um, I was just curious. Um, if you have been paying attention to what's been kind of going on in the libertarian party over the last year and kind of the takeover of, uh, kind of an older guard and these new people coming in, the Mises caucus people who agree with you on a lot of foreign policy stuff. Now, we're curious if you, have you paid attention to any of those people?
0: You know, libertarian wise, I only, I'm only really plugged in via Scott Horton. I'm sure you know who he is. Um,
6: yeah, uh, yes. yeah, they are kind of yeah. the anti-Scott Horton people, as far as I can
0: tell. Oh, they are. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, so so Scott Horton is a libertarian. So, on domestic yes. policy, I, I, I assume him and I don't agree on much. But on foreign policy, I think there's no one better. I, I follow him very closely uh, for his foreign policy coverage because he's just a wealth of knowledge and has written some really great books. Uh, Enough Already, about the war on terrorism and Fool's Errand, about the war in Afghanistan. I've, I've just learned a ton from him. And so he's the, so that's my main libertarian, uh, kind of, kind otherwise, no. otherwise, no, I haven't followed what's happened. So inside the party, you're saying that's the other faction that has won out.
6: Yeah. I kind of, I think the, um, uh, what is his name? The comedian, Dave Smith is kind of their figurehead. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all.
0: I know. Yeah. I've seen Dave Smith before. Uh, he's, I've seen him on Joe Rogan a few times
6: yeah he's uh, yeah. he's big on Yemen he likes bringing that up a lot so um, yeah. I was just curious if you would ever you guys would ever maybe talk to each other I know you went on Kurt Metzger's podcast and not really a, a political show necessarily but um, definitely more kind of not red or blue kind of people. Yeah, 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 would you yeah, be yeah, interested sure. in that
0: yeah of course I would and I've, I've you know everything I've seen from Dave Smith I've Uh, on foreign policy i totally agree with and he said some nice things um about the work i do so yeah totally
6: oh awesome that's all i was calling for thanks for your time
0: appreciate it okay sam sam you are up all right we lost sam okay matthew hello hi hi uh i was calling just about i was curious
7: if you'd ever heard about back to russia gate um a popular YouTube sensation, like that's an ex-mafia guy, he was. He did a video about like, did he think Donald Trump was in the mafia at all? And he said, no, I never dealt with them or anything. But he then said that during the Mueller investigation, they came to him because he had done a deal with like some Russian mobster. And just to funnel some cash, they bought an apartment at the Trump Tower, but they didn't deal with Trump at all. They just bought an apartment there. And the investigation came to him trying to connect the dots, being like, oh, well, was Trump in on it? And he was kind of laughing, like, no, we just bought an apartment there. Like, we had nothing to do with it. So to all the people that are always bringing up the 80s, like, you know, oh, well, Trump had ties back in the 80s. I I thought that was kind of
0: a funny story because there was really nothing there. Of course they did. The Mueller investigation spent so much time and money chasing every possible Russia angle uh, conceivable. And part of the problem was the reason they were doing this is because they, they were, Russiagate actually was very devoid of Russia. In terms of actual Russian officials and Russian nationals interacting with the Trump campaign, there's really nothing there. There's basically two Russian officials that you can say interacted with the Trump campaign. Uh, one is the, US ambas- the, the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak, who interacts with a bunch of Trump people during the campaign, which is, of course, very common. And then there's uh, a, a assistant to Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, Peskov, who calls back Michael Cohen after Cohen's trying to reach her or, or he's trying to reach Peskov because he wants to he wants to reach Putin and they want Russia's help in building Trump Tower Moscow. And this aide says to Cohen, sorry, I can't help you. But if you want to come to this, we're having this uh, conference in St. Petersburg in June. You're welcome to come. And that's it. That's Russiagate right there in terms of the actual nature of contacts between Trump or anybody representing Trump and anybody remotely tied to the Russian government. That's it. Uh, But because they had to make this look credible because the investigation was based on nothing uh, and possibly even based on the Steele dossier, which was a fabrication, they had to try to scramble and find any possible thing. And that's why they were doing things like going after this random mobster who bought an apartment in... uh, in Trump Town, I mean, of course they did because they needed to find a Russian, <laughs> anything to make Russia Gate look credible.
7: Yeah, that was it. It's Michael Fanchese. You could or however pronounce it. You could just YouTube it. It's a short video about where he talks about Donald Trump. It's kind of funny. It's towards the end. So it kind of proves your point. Cool. Well, Thanks. thank you. Thank you. All
0: right. Sam. Sam might be having phone problems today. Yeah. OK. No, Sam. All right, well, the queue is currently empty. Sam, all right, well, Sam is back, and if anybody else wants to jump in, you have a wide open lane. All right, Sam, let's
8: try you again. Can you hear me? Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah, every time I clicked unmute, it kept crashing. Okay,
0: uh, what kind yeah. of phone are you using?
8: Uh, the Galaxy Flip. All right, well.
0: Maybe, yeah. uh Maybe the answer is to update the app if uh, if you haven't. Otherwise, I don't know.
8: Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Uh, yeah, you know, um, it's actually funny you bring this topic up because I was actually speaking to one of my relatives in Syria, and uh, there's actually a like more of a. I, I did. I'm sorry, I missed. Uh, I came in 30 minutes late, so I, I missed uh, the opening. But I would say that when you ask people why we're in Syria, the two answers you always get is, "Oh, we're fighting." We have to fight ISIS. And I said, well, hold on, aren't they aren't, aren't, aren't isn't that done now? I mean, you have pockets that show up, but the Syrian military can't even go too far into the into the uh, Deir ez region because it, it's viewed as an attack on the U.S. And or uh, the biggest thing you get from people on the left is, well, we have to protect the Kurds. And I'm I point out, well, you understand that, A, they're not a monolith. You can't paint them with a broad brush. You're, you're talking about a you know Kurdish-led groups, but even the Kurdish population in Syria doesn't take out, is not one third of the country. So how come they're controlling one third of the country? And you you have people who have understood this difference, but you know the more that these that uh, the, the uh, people in Syria can't get access to the oil, they can't get access to the wheat, it starts harboring resentment. Uh, I was actually speaking to one of my relatives who said like, yeah, I know people who are very like you know have no problems with with people in the Kurdish community in Syria, but you you know you start. You start having to wait longer lines, uh, longer, uh, long, uh, wait longer in line for bread. You start getting angrier and angrier, and it's just you know it's kind of hard not to to point a blame, even though you're aware it's the U.S. There, are, these guys, uh, these Kurdish-led groups are just kind of taking advantage of the moment. You know, uh, that's what I find hard to convince people on the left, though, is when you explain like this. That was the same argument as to why we are staying in Iraq is we have to protect the Kurds, but you're only adding fuel to an ongoing uh, to a fire.
0: And what's sad oh, about the Kurds being used by the U.S. is the Kurds are always sold out by the U.S. when they're no longer convenient. It happens every single time. Um, oh, yeah. It happened even in Syria where the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, allowed a Turkish invasion and a ethnic mm-hmm. cleansing operation uh, a few years ago uh, when, uh, when, when Turkey wanted to. And well, that uh, that's twice, actually. You covered yeah. it
8: with uh, on the real news. First was, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember uh, how it went, it was in the northwest of Syria. You had uh, two towns, Afrin, and uh-huh. uh, I believe it was Jarabulus. Now, Afrin was controlled by the PKK, mm-hmm. who had uh, wor- working relations with the Syrian government, and then you had the uh, on, on the Jarabulus uh, side because you had this small like. Uh, you know, Turkish bloc that was blocking them. You had a um, a group that was went from YPG to SDF. was the name change. And then when the the Turks were saying we're going to invade Afrin, the Russians kept trying to uh, convince the PKK groups like, hey, you need to cut a deal with the Syrian government because that's the only thing that's going to stop Turkey from coming in. They didn't listen because they figured, well, you know, we have our our quote unquote brothers on the other side, so I don't see a problem. And then. It took Turkey, what was this, 2016? It took them, like, what, a day to to roll into Afrin?
0: Yes, and Turkey now employs many of the so-called moderate rebels that the U.S. used to fund. They basically used them (laughs) as their new proxy force to uh, repress the Kurds, which shows really all all along the the lie about moderate rebels.
8: Well, uh, I mean, I'll never forget who it was. was it uh, Petraeus? The it was an article I remember re- uh, uh, reading because it was covered on secular talk. But essentially, I think it was General Petraeus. They had they were having a meeting in the Obama administration, and he had floated the idea. He said, "Why don't we arm moderate Al Qaeda?" And everyone <laughs> stared at me like, "What
1: the hell is yeah. a moderate Al Qaeda?" I
8: I always wondered what that is. It's like Al Qaeda's death to America. The moderate guys are like Monday, Wednesday, and alternating fr- uh, Sundays. Death to America. Tuesday, Thursdays, and alternating Sunday. Uh, I mean Saturdays. Uh, American goes through itself. I'm I'm like, what is an what is a moderate Al Qaeda exactly? But uh, it, yeah, it, I mean, yeah.
0: it will it will forever yeah. blow my mind that just ten years after 9-11, just ten years. I mean, at any point, it would be a scandal. But just ten years, which is not that long. The U.S. decided to side with the very group that had attacked it uh, with the, one of the worst terror attacks in U.S. history. I mean, it's um, it's it's unbelievable, and it's just the the amnesia about that, and the fact we still can't really talk about it in U.S. media. It's it speaks to how powerful that hegemonic drive is. That it just means even working with Al Qaeda is normalized. The best person person who said it best, aside from Petraeus was our current National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who wrote to Hillary Clinton, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. That's a direct quote. And, you know, uh, he was being accurate, but the fact that he saw no problem with that and no one else saw a problem with that is just mind-blowing.
8: Well, the whitewashing that occurred, you were talking about um, how... Uh, These uh, very, you know, the groups and what they were chanting. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, There was a a Syrian soccer goalie or something when he when he died. You had nearly every reporter from, you know, the Post, Reuters, the Guardian tweeting out, oh, what a hero, hero he was. And people were pointing out, like, here's a video of him literally chanting, like, yay, the towers went down. Yeah, I want to remove the, you know, the Alawites to the grave. And w- when you bring these things up, people are like, well, oh, how, how dare you? That's just Russian propaganda. I'm like, it, it's him on the video saying it. So I don't know what yeah, other that's proof right. you that's right. need. And, but, and uh, recently,
0: recently, when uh, Zarahiri was killed by the U.S. in Afghanistan in Kabul in a drone bombing, he was mourned in Idlib, uh, the al-Qaeda-controlled province, uh, by some top clerics uh, there. Under the government. And we're just supposed to ignore all that. Uh, Sam, thanks for the call. We have yeah. in the chat the founder of this very app, uh, David Sachs. Hi, David. And how are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I saw that the queue was empty, so I decided
9: to jump in here. Normally, I don't like to take other people's turn. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. Yeah. So I always enjoy your commentary. Uh, shifting gears, did you have a take on this interview that Zuckerberg just did with Rogan? Where, um, you know, Zuckerberg provided this information that the FBI had come to Facebook, um, I guess, in October of 2020 and warned them off the Hunter Biden laptop story.
0: Uh, so Zuckerberg just confirmed what we knew already to be true and what was always just such it, it was literally it, it really was the most stunning act of self-censorship I've ever seen in U.S. media. It was so blatant. All it took. Was some anonymous intelligence officials to declare that Hunter Biden's laptop might be Russian disinformation, and that was enough to get Twitter to censor it, and uh, and Facebook now apparently admitting that they were, as you say, asked by the FBI also <laughs> to suppress it, and the fact that it could happen um, is a scandal, and I just i I'm, I'm still in disbelief about it because we're supposed to at least whatever our political views censorship is supposed to be just the most baseline off-limits thing that everybody can agree on. We just can't censor. And in this case, all it took was just the FBI and some anonymous officials saying, uh, hey, uh, suppress this, and everyone complied. And I my, I mean, my reaction to Zuckerberg, it's just he was so nonchalant about it. Um, and there was this presumption that the government has the right to tell him that. And I, I wish he could find the uh, way to stand up to that, because if he doesn't, then what's to stop the government next time from doing the exact same thing when, uh, they're, they don't want obviously Trump to win. And so they want to put their weight behind uh, Biden. And so they asked for censorship on no basis at all. And, um, it's a playbook that's been legitimized by Gate where basically anything deemed to be inconvenient to the establishment can just be chalked up to Russia and you don't need, and you don't need any, and you don't need any evidence for it. You just need some anonymous uh, people to, uh, just to say it uh what was your reaction
9: well yeah i mean the, the the piece of it that i thought was new and maybe i just didn't know was um i mean i knew that there were the 50 former intelligence and security state officials who had signed the letter i guess organized by um clapper and um Who's the other guy? I'm forgetting. Um, but in any event, they signed the the letter saying that this Hunter Biden laptop story had all the "quote unquote" hallmarks of Russian disinformation. So, even though they themselves, uh, you know, never examined the laptop, they were basically they claimed that it was inauthentic, that it had the hallmarks, and then the media ran with that story. And I thought that Facebook and Twitter had censored on that basis. The piece of this that was new to me. Was this idea that the FBI had actually gone to Facebook and told them something similar, uh, and that's why Facebook had censored the story? Um, so is that is that not new information that it wasn't just former officials, but you know, but active, you know, officials of the FBI
0: getting involved at that level? Fair enough. See, what I knew was that the FBI was investigating or claiming it was investigating the laptop mm-hmm. as possible uh, as a possible Russian influence campaign. The part that is new, as you say, was the FBI actually directly asking Facebook to suppress it. Um, that uh, that was news to me. I guess to me, it just kind of confirmed what I suspected, mm-hmm. and. When the I I knew that the FBI basically sent the signal that it was backing this when it claimed that yes it was looking into this, which when you say that gives the whole claim some legitimacy that the FBI takes this seriously enough, and that to me was the FBI putting its weight on the scale. But right as you say, the part that we didn't know was that actually there was a direct request, which is just unbelievable.
9: That's yeah. a bombshell because I guess the FBI had this laptop in their possession for a year. So they knew the laptop was authentic. They had to know that because they'd examined it. So when these 50 officials based on nothing, except, you know, quote unquote, you know, their interpretation of the hallmarks came up with a story claiming it was disinformation, the FBI had to know that was false because they, they actually could authenticate yes. the laptop. So for them to then intervene, by throwing their weight behind this fake story, even though they knew it was fake, that to me just takes
0: this whole thing up to 11. You know, Absolutely. And, and it puts the whole Mar-a-Lago raid now in, that, in a new light because you have to evaluate uh, any claim made by the FBI against Trump in the context of what they've said before and what they've done before. And what they've done before now includes... Enabling a scam, uh, first Russia Gate, and then this Hunter Biden laptop thing, and then going to Facebook and asking them to yeah. suppress it, which is just um, it, it's it's unbelievable, and it's also a scandal, yes. of course. I mean, and you know, uh, Glenn Greenwald is the one who's talked about this the most that the media chose to go along with it. The media didn't have to enable all this, and they didn't have to censor yeah. there, but they did. You know, everybody went along with it, and to the point where you just couldn't even mention. The existence of the laptop, and I'm pretty sure, by the way, that the the computer store owner who came forward, the reason he came forward was because he had given it to the FBI, but there, he saw nothing being done, and so that's mm. why I think he he then leaked it to whoever to to Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. If I have that interesting,
9: partially. oh, that's interesting. Okay, that fills in a, a missing piece. Um, you know, I would say, in fairness to Facebook, I think a lot of uh, executives of companies would believe the FBI if the FBI came to them and said, Mm -hmm. listen, you're about to be a victim of Russian disinformation that's designed to interfere in our presidential election. I think a lot of executives would have believed that and acted on that. So, um, I mean, I think it's different now. Now, in light of what we know, I don't think you can automatically believe or assume that the FBI is telling the truth about this. But I think back then, I think it was a natural response of Facebook to believe the FBI, um, right?
0: Well, early. and there's also a, and there's also yeah. a backstory too, where Facebook basically Facebook was partly blamed for Trump winning in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there was this whole fake scandal about Cambridge Analytica and how they supposedly influenced right. You know, which I think was so overblown, and I mean the details are too long to go through. But in terms of Russian influence in 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 2016, Facebook basically uh, did this review. Uh, After, you know, after these claims of Russian interference came out, Facebook did their own review and they found that this Russian troll farm was basically a commercial clickbait operation um, and was doing this basically, was posting these fake ads and deceptive ads for revenue uh, to attract an audience and to hit on certain divisive issues and hope to get clicks. But then Russiagate really exploded. And uh, there was this account in the Washington Post that explained what happened where basically operatives from the Obama and Clinton campaign came up with their own theory that really all these Russian ads were actually part of some sophisticated influence campaign. And this coincided with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook being under a lot of pressure from Congress. And there was even threats to break up Facebook. And so Mark Warner, the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, flew out to Facebook headquarters and basically, I think, told them what the new narrative was going to be, that like, they could no longer say that these Russian ads were commercial they had to get behind this notion of them being the sophisticated influence campaign. And Zuckerberg came before Congress and he was, you know, Democrats were harassing him. And I think hanging over this was the threat of Facebook being broken up. And I personally, I think that Facebook caved under that pressure.
9: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like moving forward, if the government comes to a social network to remove a story, I mean, what, what should the proper response be, I guess? That Facebook should say, give us a court order. I mean, we're not going to just do it based on your word. Is that, is that I the mean, response?
0: Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, what basis does the government have to suppress a story unless you can say this is encouraging uh, hate speech or an act of violence. Um, and they, I don't think they, and it, yeah, if they were to call the government's bluff, uh, can you produce a court order getting us to censor a story that's inconvenient to the president's son, for example, the government yeah. wouldn't do that. I think the government like would back down. It's a free speech issue, and I think yeah. if if Facebook wanted to, they could call the government's bluff. I mean, what what power? You can't say there's a national security or terrorism element here. It's about a, you know, it's a it's a it's a corrupt kid's laptop. Um, yeah, and I, I I hope I would hope that there, you know, or or even how about just ask for evidence? Say okay, wh- so what's the evidence that this is Russian? And I just don't think they'd be able to produce it. Yeah.
9: I just think, you know, until now, I think most people would have just believed the FBI. I mean, it's just, it's pretty sure. incredible that the FBI could go to a company to get them to take down a story and be lying about that. Um, you know, now I don't know if, if our view of this will be widely shared in Silicon Valley. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> it probably
0: be memory hold, but, um yeah but moving forward, it seems like it requires a different response well, you know it did you know there was some contrition from Jack Dorsey of Twitter. He said that that was a mistake for Twitter to suppress it mm-hmm. and I yep. think that was a response to the outrage that he saw in public and the understanding that this was a basic violation of free speech and this was an unprecedented government intrusion so hopefully hopefully uh, what Jack Dorsey saw will Will redound elsewhere because I think it's. I mean, it's, it's, it's. it's I, I can't think of a scandal like it. Yeah. Well, when Jack said
9: that, it it appeared that the decision was just entirely Twitter's. You know that mm. they had made the decision and they underestimated the backlash, and it turned out that they were wrong because the story was accurate. So it seemed like that was contrition on his part for a, a poor decision they made. Um, what Zuckerberg seems to be saying is that decision was actually at the behest of the FBI. Yep. Um Now, I don't know if the FBI also went to Twitter, I guess it stands to reason they probably did. So yeah, it's very interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, even though I was, I was already blown away by what happened just on the, just the initial suppression, but then hearing that it came as a result of a direct request, it, as you say, it takes it to a new level. Yeah.
9: Yeah. All right. Well, great talking to you. Thanks for all the great work you do. Likewise. Thank you, David. Thanks all for right,
0: this thanks app for uh, like on you. behalf of all of us here. Thank you. All right. Great talk to you. Take, take care. Okay. Jeff. Jeff, are you there? There you go. Uh, Jeff, we can hear you for a second if you're there.
10: Hmm. Oh, hi. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes,
0: there you go. Hi. Yes.
10: Okay. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I wasn't
0: expecting. Okay, Jeff, you've muted yourself. You ready to go? All right. We will go to uh Cash and Jeff, you can fix your audio problems in the meantime. Okay, Cash.
11: Hi, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah, hi. Hi. Yeah, I just want to uh say thank you for doing this. I think it's uh, it's wonderful that you uh, you know, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts and, you know, bringing everybody together. Uh I wanted to get your sense of uh, going back to the Ukraine and Russia thing. What do you sense uh, this, this theory about that int- uh, Russia is going to just now, you know, drag its heel, wait for the winter? And whole theory about that waiting for uh, Germany to flip, that is, you know, uh, change its mind, you know, s- see how the... You know everything uh what happens in the uh, in the winter with uh, with uh, with the prices and you know change of scenery in terms of their pushback uh by the public and uh and then you know uh russia waiting it out
0: i think if i were taking uh, or if I were making bets, I would exactly bet on that scenario
11: um,
0: I think Russia was initially open, or at least claiming to be open to some diplomacy. They had their terms for ending the conflict laid out pretty early on. It basically was the Minsk Accords of 2015, plus a recognition of Crimea being Russian territory, uh, and a pledge that Ukraine won't join NATO. At this point now, though, Russia's given up a lot, and they might not be interested anymore in, in any kind of diplomacy. And yeah, as you say, they might be betting on Europe caving once they face the consequences of not having enough fuel in the wintertime. So if I were betting, that's what I'd bet on. But of course, I have no special insight into what the plan is. Um, You know, we're getting a lot of stories right now in the US media that Russia is a spent force, that they've lost all these soldiers. And I have no idea what's true or not, but it it strikes me as unlikely. Uh, I think Russia is prepared to See this through. They've invested so much, and uh, yeah, Germany is in a really tough position. And I think I, w- you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Russia is betting on them to ultimately crumble. Because what you're asking Germany to do it, it, by continuing this is basically not only ration fuel, but also sacrifice some of its industries. And that's just not going to cut it for I think a lot of people. So I think Russia is weighing that into its calculations.
11: Right. Um, the, and that could be one theory. And I, I think it's the multiple layers to it. And the other thing is, I think I, I get RT somehow or the other. I get RT. I get to see it. And uh, I I I was watching them and they were talking about, you know, that they're like, I think, 10 kilometers or something or 11 kilometers from Mikalev, which is, you know, right there near Odessa. And what happens, you know, if they take Mikalev and come to Odessa and close off, uh you know, by you know by the fall or the middle of the fall you know access to the black sea coast you know uh, do you think uh you know the ukrainian government is going to fall that's my last question
0: i don't know you know i don't know enough i don't have a good enough handle on the military landscape to say but um i uh, i it strikes me you know all this talk we're hearing about a ukrainian offensive and Russia's on the defensive i mean that's been the that's been the character of this, the reporting this week in the Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post is that, you know, that Russia is on the decline. That to me says that I, I, I don't buy it. And to me, all this just strikes me as a way to launder more money into the people profiting off of this war and to prolong it a little bit longer. But
11: um, beyond that. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I think know. we need to put some context around, like, you know, why it's slowing down. Right. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a war, there are mines and like there, you know, they're good to you know. You, they can't just you know go through and lose more and more of their own soldiers in these mines and all, all that, right? So yeah, it, yeah, it's going to be painstaking. All right, thank you, thanks, Aaron.
0: Thank you, Cash. Okay, and Jeff will be our final caller. Oh, hi. Jeff, you're up. Yes, sorry,
10: I don't know why I've been having trouble with my phone just at the moment. Um, yeah, I was going to bring up the points I was going to bring up were addressed partly. Um, by, uh, I think it was Sam earlier on, Uh, and that is that the third of Syria that uh, the U.S. occupies is uh, basically Kurdistan, isn't it? It's the uh, sort of northeastern third. Um, And I was thinking, because you heard Dana Stroll there say, I think she said the U.S. has 1,000 troops there. And obviously you can't Occupy such a vast area with just a thousand troops. So this is basically I'm guessing uh, the occupation is basically being carried out by the uh, SDF um, You know the Syrian Democratic Forces Um, And that is strange because as your previous caller pointed out The you know the 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 Kurds were basically betrayed by the US a number of years ago when uh, the US you know allowed Turkey to invade um, you know, invade. I think it was Manbij and Afrin and the area around that to create like a buffer zone. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering what the um, what the SDF is hoping to get out of this because the US is never going to support calls for Kurdish, you know, a Kurdish state on on this area of Syria because it borders Turkey, which is a NATO ally. Um, what they're getting,
0: what they're getting, is basically look. I mean, if you live, if you're living under the US. They do have a lot of autonomy. They're able to organize their society in ways that they couldn't if they were living under Syria. So they do have some autonomy more than they would under the Syrian government. And also, look, their leaders are getting bought off. Their leaders are doing very well. They live in really fancy villas. It's good for them. So the U.S. makes it worth their while. But yes, as you say, over the long term, the U.S. will eventually sell them out. And at that point, they'll have to make a deal with the Syrian government or else they'll face the wrath of Turkey. So To me, this is sort of just delaying the inevitable. But I think in the meantime, the U.S. is making it worth their while for the leaders at the top.
10: Yes. And like you, I suspect, although I can't prove that there's quite a lot of traffic uh, between, you know, Iraqi Kurdistan and and, uh, Syrian uh, Kurdistan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes sense.
10: So that's all I had to say, really. Um, I joined the queue because I know you were short on
0: guests. I appreciate I appreciate the assist. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.